Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I'm not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we go back in time to the early 1900s to talk about early labor unions, nice. the beautiful landscape of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Love it. and Canadian-born miner Harry Orchard, who used to blow people up with dynamite. <laughs> Okay, I don't. Th- that's a murder weapon we have not really focused in on yet. No, it's not. This is a, I <laughs> yeah. love old timey crimes too. The, uh-huh. the whole thing is great. People could do whatever they want. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Guy's got a great name too, Harry Orchard. Oh damn! All right. Well, speaking of explosives, we need to shout out the people who blew up our Patreon this week. Oh my god, Lori, Maddie, Zora, and Karen. Plus, a special thank you to Abby who jumped up to a higher tier. Thank you to each and every one of you for helping us get closer and closer to our goal tears start at just five dollars and once we reach 500 bucks a month we can start releasing two patreon exclusive episodes a month that's right uh now remember everyone this is a true story involving murder violence drugs adult themes etc so if any listeners are like nick and they don't want to hear about those things please consider listening to a different podcast plus we'll probably do a little cursing and joking so if you don't like that stuff tune us out all right nikki are you ready to hear this story no Okay, let's get started. The fuse is lit. The explosives are in sight. Muriel, blow us away. You seem oh, amped that about just it. made me so mad. Okay. <laughs> okay, ready? Here we go. Okay, good. You're set up for success. Home run time. In January of 1906, a gentleman walked through the snow and into the Caldwell, Idaho jail to meet a mysterious fake sheep buyer being held there on suspicion of murder. <laughs> So James McParland Mm -hmm. was pushing 70 years old. He was an investigator who was mostly famous for his work on a case 30 years prior. So someone people knew of, but probably thought he had died by now. He was like really famous a while back. Oh, so he was kind of a one hit wonder in the crime solving world. Yeah, but a big hit, right? Okay, got it. So in the 1870s, McParland helped to convict a group of men responsible for a series of murders, arson, and bombings in the Pennsylvania coal fields during a period of unionization and labor disputes. Okay. So McParland was responsible for the investigation into an organization for Irish immigrants and coal miners in the Pennsylvania area called the Ancient Order of Hibernarians that was believed to serve as a front for a U.S. sect of the Irish secret society, the Molly Maguires. The Molly Maguires were believed to be behind the violence in Pennsylvania at the time. And ultimately, 20 men from that organization were sentenced to hang in part because of McParland's investigative work. That's a lot of hangings. All right. Yeah. (laughs) So investigator McParland was in Caldwell for 
a completely different reason today. Okay. Mm-hmm. Someone had just exploded the ex-governor of Idaho with 15 pounds of dynamite. And a man pretending to be a traveling sheep farmer was found with piles of bomb-making equipment in his hotel room. Damn. So McParland has come to the jail to meet this man. Uh-huh. And he walks in. He's wearing gold-rimmed glasses and this massive handlebar mustache and a fancy riding coat. And he approaches the man in the cell. The pretend sheep farmer, known as T.S. Hogan, a.k.a. John Dempsey, a.k.a. Albert E. Horsley, (laughs) a.k.a. Our Man Harry Orchard. (laughs) So although McParlin was an independent... You're just shooting from the hip today. (laughs) This is just rapid fire, man. I gotta step my game up. I'm trying to keep you off edge. Uh, I don't want you to be like predictable, you know, because the best part about these old timey crimes is that they're wild. Right. So right now we have one bad guy who's eight bad guys. Yes. Right. Okay. So although McParland was an independent investigator, completely unknown to Harry Orchard, something in McParland's eyes made Harry Orchard want to spill the beans. Mm -hmm. And so for some unknown reason, Harry Orchard decided to spill the beans. Stop saying spill the beans. <laughs> <laughs> you have to not talk like that. I wrote the whole script to antagonize you today. You're doing a good job. People listen to this, Muriel. They're going to think you actually say things like that. I do. <laughs> no, you don't. I do. Let no, me finish you... my story, okay? okay? He spills the beans. Stop it. So we're going to talk about Uh Harry's story. All right, great. He was born in Northumberland, Ontario, Canada on March 18th, 1866. Mm -hmm. So Northumberland was mostly settled by British loyalists who had fled New York and other areas after the Revolutionary Mm, War. Interesting. In the late 1700s. So those people who fought for the British were actually given free plots of land in that area. So a bunch of people got up there and got free plots of land. And if you sided with the British, but you didn't fight, then you would get very cheap plots of land. All right. And so it was mostly a farming community. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, So Orchard was a member of a big family, one of eight children. So lots of people around. And he ended up dropping out of school in the third grade. In 1888, when Orchard turned 22, he followed this steady stream of people moving to Saginaw, Michigan to work in the new booming lumber industry as a logger. So according to michigan.history.org, by the late 1800s, Michigan was the largest producer of lumber in the U.S. And because of the massive forests of white pine in Michigan, most people thought that the supply would last for this epically long time. But within 20 years, kind of between 1870 and 1890, the forests were basically clear cut. Mm, So Orchard came down to Michigan in 1888. So like right at the tail end of this huge historical boom. Okay. And, the life in the state was really interesting for loggers, right? Like they would set up these massive 
logging camps for the workers and they would have bunk houses and everyone would live there in the woods and like on these sites. Yeah. And they would have blacksmiths and a barn and a granary for the animals and these huge mess camps where they fed everyone piles of potatoes and pork and beans and bread. Just yeah, yeah. Carbs. It was like its own little city or ecosystem. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And the work was very difficult physically. I think I read somewhere that they say they would burn upwards of 5,000 calories a day just from working. Oh, my God. So people are eating like piles of food, and that's like a huge part of the of the camp. I go hiking for an hour. I burn 500. <laughs> damn it. I can't say I'm jealous of them, but also, damn. Yeah, you're definitely not jealous. Yeah, but they're um, ripped. They worked from 4 a.m. to dusk, right? So mm-hmm. we're from kind of high north like seattle in in the states right so like in the winter time it gets to be dusk around 4 30 or something mm. like that but based on that type of math they're working between 12 and 16 hours a day depending on the season yeah so, that's um horrible yeah it's horrible <laughs> really hard labor yeah okay. so about a year into his time there orchard was completely over it uh, and he returned to Ontario. He got married and sort of randomly got a job operating a cheese factory back in Canada. What? You just waltzed into operating a cheese factory back in the day? I love this story uh-huh. because apparently, I think Orchard might have been a little special, like mm-hmm. meaning that I think he was kind of bright, you uh-huh. know? But he was so many different things in his life yeah yeah and it really just felt like this landscape where you could kind of if you were articulate enough or whatever mm-hmm. presented in the way you needed to present you could basically get any job right <laughs> it's the and, and i'll i'll talk to you about that because that's a big part of his early life right and he ends up getting arrested for being a pretend sheep farmer so you didn't even have to actually have the job you just pretend to have jobs i mean it's kind of the same thing right and i think here Right. He's probably around 23 or 24. Now is where we start to see a sparkle of his personality. Okay. So within a year or so, Orchard was promoted to operator of the cheese factory. He started an affair with a married woman, burned down the cheese factory for insurance money, (laughs) and then ran off with his lover to British Columbia. Damn. So real quick, like, here we go. Now, you're going to start... You're seeing something here, right? This is a pattern. <laughs> Great. So Orchard and his new girlfriend split up uh, pretty quickly after that. And then Orchard bounced over to Spokane, Washington. Mm-hmm, been there many times. Yes. Been to BC too for what it's worth, if anyone out there really cares. <laughs> yeah, right. And if you're not familiar with this geography, Spokane, Washington is in pretty much the furthest northwestern state in Washington in the United States. So it's right along the border of Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's... You know, colder up there, lots of pine trees. That's where we're from. It's very rainy. That's the idea. Not in eastern Washington. Well, not not in eastern Washington, but yeah. Washington in general yeah. is known for being like that. Yeah, and so right. is Idaho. Right. right, definitely BC. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, thanks for the correction. <laughs> I appreciate it. Spokane. Generally speaking. Eastern Washington, whatever. He doesn't okay. spend that much time in Spokane. Okay. okay. <laughs> He's the one who brought it up. So he bounced over to Spokane, Washington. He's in Spokane, Washington. Yeah. Right next door to Spokane, about 35 miles directly to the east, is Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Yes. And at the time, 
Coeur d'Alene, or they were kind of called the Coeur d'Alene's at that point, I believe, mm-hmm. was a collection of huge silver and lead mining towns. So probably the biggest mining operation for those minerals in the U.S. at the time. Mm-hmm. And the busiest towns in the area were Kellogg, Mullen, Wallace, Burke, Jem, and Wardner. And we're going to be visiting some of those towns. Okay, cool. So Orchard walks up to an employment office in the Coeur d'Alene's and gets a job as a milkman with a route in Burke. So he's now fully in Idaho. Okay, great. And now he's a milkman. That's the most Idaho thing he could have done at the moment. Let me be the neighborhood milk delivery man. <laughs> right. <laughs> that or farming potatoes. Okay, great. Um, so this area of Idaho is really beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. We've driven mm-hmm. through there. Yeah. It's super dramatic. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you see when you've driven through there? Mountains and um, very narrow, windy freeways where you're just like, you're like, okay, this is scary. And then some pickup, not pickup truck, a semi truck with like a thousand trees strapped to it will go like blow past you and it's like that's their normal route to right. work or whatever you're just like oh my god and it's Everyone, raining and it's sleeting down these crazy roads. we are in a honda fit with all of our belongings <laughs> everyone be nice to us please so that is basically it if you've never been there it's a really dramatic landscape um so you have these steep mountains they're covered in pine trees and these really narrow canyons yeah. that kind of cut through everything. And they're made by basically really skinny little streams. So instead of the Rio Grande, you know, and the Grand Canyon <laughs> yeah, and all that kind right. of stuff, you have these little streams that have cut through these big mountains. And so it's very, very sheer cliffs and stuff like that. Yeah, they're making, really cool. they're making freeways out of creeks in Idaho. Right, you know? exactly. So at the time, the area was union country. So it was dominated by the Western Federation of Miners. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to come here and like get in on this mining money and you didn't want to join the union, you were quote unquote run down the canyon, right? <laughs> Which oh, included no. a beating yeah. or maybe being murdered. Okay. <laughs> so this is like the Pacific Northwest version of the Wild West. You know, uh-huh. we're out in the middle of the rain. There's trees. It's very you know, cold and dark, and yes. then they'll murder you if you try to do these things. Yeah, right. You better join that union. Yeah, but it is the Wild West, so uh-huh. that's the energy we're bringing to, you know, this story. Great. So, as one Girl, of- you brought Wild West energy for the beginning. You just got a six-shooter <laughs> on each hip. <laughs> heating them up on the campfire, and then instead of eating them, spilling them directly on the ground. Okay. So, as one would expect, the Mine Owners Association actively opposed the Western Federation of Miners, right? There's a big conflict set up between capitalists and laborers, right? Uh-huh. Whatever. It's right. On. And there was a lot of drama. Mine owners would send in undercover agents to infiltrate the union ranks. Miners would strike. You know, they have mm-hmm. all this stuff going on subterfuge, whatever. And so there's lots of tension in the Coeur d'Alene. Right? right. Everyone's getting beaten down the mountainside or whatever Something, said. yeah, something, yeah. something, right? So being like this weird combination of overachiever and degenerate, <laughs> Orchard saved all his milk route money. Uh-huh. And in the fall of 1897, he bought 116th interest in the Hercules mine in Burke for $500. So he paid $200 down and he was going to pay on this uh, 
you know, on his share, right? Okay. So a pretty rad and forward thinking dude, right? Like he was coming from nothing, having yeah. these entry level positions. And he looks at all these people making money in mines and yeah. he thinks I'm going to own a mine. Yeah. You know, that's where his first thought goes to. I love Orchards in bloom, baby. Oh my God. <laughs> and then. I'm the, I too could play at this game, Mary. <laughs> Yours is all puns. Well, yours is all just nerdy sayings. Okay, okay, we're focusing. Sorry. Then, in this great American landscape of dreams, <laughs> this logger slash cheese factory operator slash milkman slash mine owner yeah. went into what he called, quote, the coal and wood business. Okay. So right. he basically decided he was going to make his money, needs to keep making these payments on the land, on the mine share. Yes. So he decides to quit the milk route and just go into his business for himself, selling coal and wood in these like mining encampments. All right. And he cleans up. He starts making so much money, right? He does really well. He's paying down his share until the devil on his shoulder perked up again. Because <laughs> the mining town yeah. is crazy as heck. It has like saloons and brothels and gambling halls and all this is kind of stuff. crazy as heck, yes. Muriel? <laughs> it has the whole nine yards of, you know, wild town, okay. whatever. Uh-huh. So Orchard just goes off. He starts drinking and gambling and he basically loses everything uh-huh, uh-huh. he loses his business he loses his mind share he can't pay on it and then uh-huh. he has to sell it and then at the end at the bottom of the bottom he gets a job as a mucker in the tiger poorman mine are you gonna say what a mucker is that yes <laughs> sounds like a made-up <laughs> job for like so mucking is basically it's actually a pretty well-paid entry-level job mm-hmm. in the mines at the time so you'd basically shovel the junk out of the mines by hand and load them into these carts. Okay. And according to Tim Willoughby for the Aspen Times, back then the quota for muckers was 16 carts of busted up rock per day, right? Mm -hmm. You had to fill 16 carts. And each cart could carry up to a ton of weight. Oh, my God. So I read this article and some other things, and that statistic popped out, and I was like, I feel like that's unbelievable that someone is hand shoveling 16 tons of rock a day. I feel like that can't be real. Yeah, right. Into a, a wheelbarrow, basically. If it is real, then uh, more power to you. Yeah. I or, mean, that's insane. Yeah, right. I mean, And you're working like, like eight to 10 hours a day and you're just shoveling rock. It's not a lot of rock. It's just very heavy rock. Yeah. And it might depend on like, obviously, the density of the rock. So maybe if you're mining different things, the rock weighs a different amount. So they fill carts rather than weigh it, right? Yeah, totally. But I, I heard that. <laughs> so he's just like picking up little pieces of hair and then coming up with like a very light exterior that looks like a cart full of rocks. Yeah, that's a that's a Nick Castellini movie right there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I got some Harry Orchard in me too. All right. <laughs> you do. So after joining the union, I'm guessing Harry Orchard found himself right at home. You know, there's big time drama, high stakes, lots of money, big ideas, and what turns out to be a solid amount of law breaking. Mm -hmm. Quickly after joining the Western Federation of Miners, Orchard attended a meeting held by local union president Ed Boyce. Boyce announced that things were heating up in the area and it was time to buy some guns. 
he had gotten a tip that mining officials were in the process of hiring tons of scabs to try and bust the union. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And on April 29th, 1899, everything came to a head. So Boyce called a 7 a.m. meeting at the union hall, and it's totally packed with people. He walks up to the front of the room and he announces that the scabs have arrived. The union had recently shut down work at the Bunker Hill and Sullivan Mine in Wardner. So they were on a labor strike there. Mm -hmm. And the mine that morning had reopened with scabs at the helm. Yeah. And so Boyce calls on everyone and he says, it's go time. We got to get some guns. We're doing And it. kill people. So... A few minutes after the meeting, a group of armed men in masks held up the Northern Pacific passenger train at Burke, and they forced the rail crew to add a bunch of boxcars to the line. Whoa, damn. So around 400 armed miners filled the boxcars, and they headed towards Wartner. God, I guess that's just what it took to get there at the time. Yeah, just a train. In Jim... Uh, the train stops. So it's kind of going through all these little mining towns, right? And collecting people <laughs> yeah. from all of these different mines. So they start over here. They go to Gem. They stop in Gem and they go and rob a powder house, which is where like the Whoa. dynamite's kept. Okay. <laughs> so all they right. steal 80 boxes of dynamite <laughs> and load it onto the train along with like a crap ton more miners. Now, all of the telegraph lines were cut out of Burke and Jem, but not before a message was sent to Wallace, where the train then picked up around 600 more armed miners at the depot. They are coming ready for war. <laughs> so everybody's really hyped. And with 1,200 miners packed into a string of boxcars. Which they have hijacked. Exactly. The train careens down into the canyon towards Wardner. Now, here's a, a quote from Orchard, okay? Orchard yeah. was very pumped. So Orchard <laughs> said, it all seemed like a gigantic picnic or a 4th of July celebration. I yeah. doubt if any of us that day thought we were breaking a law by stealing a train and forcing its crew to run us where we wanted to go and regardless of other trains, because that's the other thing. Yeah. There were other trains sharing the track. So they were just like... Oh, so they weren't even headed there anyways? Like, they were... No, they hijacked <laughs> the train. They, I thought they were going in that direction anyways. No. They were like, well, let's just add some extra boxcars. They forced the train the people to add boxcars they loaded it and then they forced them to drive wherever they wanted and a lot of these were single track lines right so like you know you could have had a train crash right, right? like nobody was there like making sure they were doing things correctly they're like to Wardner and right? Harry's like we weren't trying to break the law we were just having a good time doing what was right okay so back to Harry he says yeah. I had a loaded revolver in my pocket mm -hmm. like hundreds of others right. but I never thought for a moment we were doing anything except the proper and natural thing everybody was joking it really seemed just like a big picnic a clam bake <laughs> a barbecue <laughs> You know what? What? I believe him. Yeah, I do too. He says they were like singing songs. Yeah. It was this a most amazing thing. Yeah. So the train then barrels down a single line track at 30 miles an hour through those gorgeous narrow canyons mm -hmm. to the Bunker Hill and Sullivan Mine, mm -hmm, singing mm -hmm. their asses off the whole way down. Right, because they're all in their 20s. It's probably just like one of these house parties or something. They get broken up and the cops are like, you guys are doing, you know, you know, and they're like, it's a party, man. We didn't break no laws. Okay. Uh, Gasolini on house parties. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so <Got> the knowledge. <laughs> they get down to Wartner to the platform there. Mm-hmm. And everyone is whipped up in a frenzy. And they're all brothers in arms, but they were all types of dudes there with varying levels of experience and varying levels of impulse control. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the union leaders need to take control. So they jump off the train and they start organizing the men into these military style ranks, right? So mm-hmm. got it, nailing it, super organized. And then they send off a group of dudes with rifles in advance of the other like companies, uh-huh. right? To basically scout the area and draw out any potential guards at the mine. Sure. So then the main company starts to march forward. But people were a little too hyped and they some of them forgot about the guys they had sent ahead. So as soon as they saw the group of guys with rifles, they shot them. <laughs> So they opened fire and they killed one guy and then wounded a bunch of others. Friendly fire. Well, immediately it's friendly fire. Also, so this was pretty dumb. But then also, the armed mine guards had already gotten wind of this nutball train of dynamite coming towards them, and they had already left with the scab, so the mine was empty. (laughs) They had a big plan. Oh no! And then they just (laughs) killed one of their friends. And then the leaders, they're all standing around the mine. Everybody's gone right yeah. and so the leaders call for a few volunteers to try and blow up the mine and kind of take things in a new direction mm-hmm. and harry orchard makes kind of his lifelong big decision he raises his hand mm. of course he does he's an entrepreneur right? put me in the game coach put me in the game coach so he and along with a small group of men pack the dynamite they had stolen all around the mine and they really just blew the whole thing up. They just, <laughs> it worked. They blew it up. Yeah. Uh, and then they let all of the outbuildings that were still standing on fire. So nice. they demolished this town, basically. Mm, damn. And they shot one mining company guy, and then they got back on the train and headed back to their jobs. Did that guy die? Yes. Oh, that sucks. So everyone goes back to work. They're satisfied that they've made their point whatever yeah they don't we killed one of ours so now we also have to kill one of theirs well really we killed one of ours (laughs) right exactly (laughs) (laughs) so they all go back to work and i think what harry orchard said about not really realizing it was illegal is just the truth for like 1200 people i think it seems like what happened was they just thought oh this is a labor dispute right they didn't think you can't do that Right, right right and they all thought it was a good idea so they just were like well you're in yeah i'm in that makes sense of course Does that makes sense to you and they're yeah. like yeah so then they go and do that thing it's like us what we make choices within our lives <laughs> <laughs> i mean it pretty much sounds like every group of person that has ever gone gotten together and then afterwards realized people were mad at them mm-hmm. you know? it feels like an american tradition yes exactly <laughs> so Orchard goes back to work. He gets back to mucking at the Tiger Poorman's mine. But the wheels in his head start turning. Mm -hmm. He later said, quote, It occurred to me after the affair was over that you can't steal railroad trains, dynamite mines, and burn villages without some reaction. (laughs) 
And basically, he yeah. was right. Yes. Uh, Frank Stunenberg, the then governor of Idaho, declared a state of emergency <laughs> in the county, which he should have. Yeah, right. And then he got President McKinley to send in federal troops. So uh. Orchard... Uh, they're all trying to play it cool, right? Like yeah. the miners are still working in the town like nothing happened. Yeah, right. But Orchard and some other dudes, they start understanding the writings on the wall. A few of them realize something's not right. So they politely and quickly quit their jobs. They said, you can keep my wages, no worries. And they bounced out of Idaho. Orchard and company took off on foot walking about 50 miles to get to a small town in Montana. Uh-huh. So they walked that entire way. They were like, we're getting out of Dodge. Like, yeah, right. We're running away the only way we know how at this time right. in history. <laughs> they don't have anything else. They don't have any money. They don't have yeah. any cars. They're like, know? stealing the railroad train didn't work out so well for us last time. Yeah. We're hitting the bricks with our old feet. Right, okay. right. Uh, or the, however you used to talk back then. <laughs> the hundreds of miners who actually remained in Coeur d'Alene, mm-hmm. working in the mines and thinking everything was fine, we they were uh, captured and jailed in makeshift camps yeah and then obviously charged with all kinds of things oh yeah right over the next two years orchard bounced around the country sort of casually on the run he worked in mining camps in the west so he worked in montana california oregon and utah Mm -hmm. and in 1902 he finally settles in cripple creek colorado but sorry so sorry but he's not being pursued they don't really know who's left he's not like on a list that law enforcement's keeping their eye out for no but people know yeah right it's just very it seems very open Uh you know i'm sure that people know who escaped from Coeur d'Alene and was still working in the mining towns. And I'm sure mine owners don't want those people working in the camps and are trying to figure out who they are. And they're probably being protected, is my guess. But he never had a whiff of anyone following him. Tracking him. Got it. Yeah, sure, sure. So he lands in Cripple Creek, Colorado, and he remarries just for the heck of it. Uh, he was definitely still married to his first wife back in Canada when he got <laughs> yeah. married again. And also this lady like never comes back in the story and he doesn't spend a lot of time in Cripple Creek after this. <laughs> yeah. So he's just a freewheeling dude. Yeah. So okay. he does that and then he gets a job at the wealthy Vindicator Mine. That's the local mine. All right. So around 1903, there was a general mining strike in the area and Orchard decides to get his dancing shoes back on. <laughs> <laughs> so there were riots and federal troops were called in again along with scabs it's got the whole mixture kind of worked up all the greatest hits right and this time orchard actually snuck back into the empty vindicator mine with just a handful of men and stole a bunch of gold because he oh he nice was like, you could also do that yeah but right. he also needed a little more zazz in his life okay <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. he decided to rig a crazy bomb inside the mine that basically was a big pile of gunpowder on one side of the room. And on the other side was a pistol that he wired to the guardrail on Uh a lift um, on that level. So when someone, and because the mine was shut down, that someone would either be a mine owner or a scab. When someone rode the lift to that level and lifted the guardrail to get out, the pistol would go off And instead of shooting the person, it would shoot across the room and ignite 
the dynamite and then explode the person who is nearby. What a cruel, that's some saw type torture. Horrible. Did it work? Yeah, it works really well. The bomb went off without a hitch and Orchard exploded a mine supervisor. Oh man. So what he's doing, he has never, he's self-taught. Like he's out here inventing and we'll start to see this pattern. Like he really invented crazy bombs that had all of these like components yeah and they were all different and they all had different things and he would disguise them and wire them to different things like he had this i mean for lack of a better word this talent yeah for figuring out how to do this he has no he has a third grade education and no technical training yeah just some sort of sense that blowing up people when it comes to labor disputes is completely okay he was just like Hey man, let me try doing this. And they just say, okay. Cause it's just, you know, whatever. They don't yeah. have like a bomb guy. Yeah. And then he does it and they're just like, damn dude, where'd you right. want to do that? So, and it's gotta be considered terrorism at this point. I mean, I don't know if they were using that Absolutely. word. Absolutely. Yeah. I but, don't know if they were using that word either, but I mean, that's, it's just, he's really blowing people up. Was the point of the whole fancy gun blow up thing also to inflict more fear they're just saying you can't mess with us. Uh-huh. You know, don't try to break the unions. Labor is stronger than owners. Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at, though, did he have like a psycho sort of, um, you know, uh, like uh, uh, freaking, I can say words, like goal of sh- proving that he's also smart and this is like literally scary? You get what I'm saying, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think he was just along for the ride. He uh-huh. sounds like he just gets carried away and then yeah. he thinks it's a good idea and then he just has big ideas. I don't think yeah. he thinks about consequences very right. very clearly, you know. Yeah, right. I don't think that part of his brain is super formed. Yeah, like, so far the only action he took because he foresaw consequence was to run away to save himself. He did that, but you know, and he just kind of got tired of two different wives and just <laughs> yeah, left right. and yeah, yeah. like he had eight different jobs and you know, he was really functional and doing a great job and then yeah. he just has periods where he's like, well, I don't care and then loses <laughs> everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a definitely, I don't see him as a very controlled, psychopathic, cold-blooded calculated person okay all which right. is surprising to me because yeah. his bumps seem really complicated to me which is why i brought it up no i just think he's kind of um like i'm saying this highly functioning sort of overachieving degenerate dude <laughs> yeah. i don't really know i mean he's yeah. a very odd guy all right okay me. okay so after he explodes this mine supervisor he gets the attention of the president and the general secretary of the Western Federation of Miners. So the big, big dogs at the whole union. Mm -hmm. So those are Charles Moyer is the president and William D. Haywood is the secretary. And they hold a meeting with Orchard and they're amazed by his talent and his (laughs) history. You know, he was there in Coeur d'Alene. He was like a part of that whole thing. Oh, so they love him. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, they're protecting him. Like, they love him. They think he's great. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that you didn't know that. No, sorry. I didn't get that. Okay, yeah. They're really into it, right? Okay. So, William Big Bill Haywood, the union secretary, plays a big part in Orchard's story. So, he is actually, at the time, he's a young guy. He's the union secretary, which is still an, an massively important job. Mm-hmm. But he actually, in the future, he would be the future leader of the International Labor Union called the Industrial Workers of the World, or they're known as the Wobblies. Mm -hmm, It's a really mm -hmm. famous organization. William Big Bill Haywood 
super impressed with Orchard. He gives him $200 to live it up in Denver for a few days just as a reward, right? Wow. And then afterwards, he wants him to, uh, quote, go back to the mines and tear something loose. <laughs> and, and so a star was born. <laughs> Orchard became their man. <laughs> So Ugh. he goes to Denver. He has a great time. And then when he returns to Cripple Creek after his vacation, Orchard went back to the mines and prepared immediately to do some tearing loose. He said, quote, I got some roofing pitch and melted it. I took a dozen sticks of giant powder and tied them up in burlap, winding them tightly with twine. I put this bundle in a bucket and ran the warm pitch around it. When it had cooled, I hacked it up a bit so it looked just like a chunk of coal. And then I made a black powder fuse and filled it full of caps. I bored a hole into the chunk and then I put the fuse in and sealed it over so it would not be noticed. I made a couple of these jobs and then got an old union man named Dempsey to throw one of them into the coal bunkers as a vindicator mine. So that gives you a sense, right? He's inventing this thing, right? Yeah, yeah. That is like a bomb that he made up that he taught himself how to make. He's disguising it like a giant thing of coal. And then he made a bunch of them just to see what was up. Yeah. And then to test it, he just threw it in the mind to terrorize people just to see what would happen. He's like, yeah, I threw one, I made a bunch of those jobs, threw one in, it was pretty good, right? Yeah, right. So like, that's where he's at, right. you know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Damn, man. <laughs> So is the is, is the when does the government get involved again? They already were. I mean, they're around. Right. They're sending in federal troops. These guys are just not really containable at the moment. Damn, man. It's wild. It's a wild time. So just straight up guerrilla warfare. Yeah, there's more. <laughs> she says as she scrolls down her script. So, you know, Orchard's testing this new style of his bomb and then uh, he started helping union organizers in making up fake alibis for the men who were arrested for terrorizing the mine owners and other sort of illegal nuttiness. So he was kind of a jack of all trades within the union. He was making these bombs and yeah. doing these things. And then also they had a whole like machine of generating alibis for people. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's very involved in the planning and masterminding of how to commit these crimes and how to get people off. Also the idea that you need like a whole team of people creating alibis is so wild to me. Yeah. But they were probably just hanging out and having picnics, you know, they just like being together. They're union guys just hanging out, you know, like, okay, Jimmy was at the beach. <laughs> I can say I was at the beach with Jimmy. Yeah, like right. that's what it is. Right? Yeah, totally. So around this time, Orchard meets this really nice <laughs> Jimmy old at the beach. <laughs> that's where you're yeah, we're at the beach. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> like, which beach, you know? In, I mean, you know, we're in Idaho. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> at the beach. Just eating crabs on the beach, man. <laughs> All right. So around this time, Orchard meets this really nice old Denver shopkeeper named George Pettibone. Mm -hmm. And in a former life, little old Pettibone was a miner in Idaho before Orchard was there. Uh, where during a strike in 1892, he had stolen 200 pounds of dynamite and rigged it up into a mechanism uh, that dropped it into a smelter in a mine. So something that like melts down iron. Oh, uh, wow. So this guy's a brother. So he dropped 200 pounds of dynamite into a giant smelter and he blew up like 
everything in the area, like way a lot. Right? Yeah, right. Uh, so he was caught and he spent eight <laughs> years in prison yeah. and was blacklisted by the Mine Owners Association. Uh-huh. So he couldn't work. Right. But he still paid all his union dues and he was super active in the union, uh-huh. even though he couldn't work in it. So right. obviously... <laughs> So he loves He's Harry Orchard. Up, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, he walked so Harry could run. Right. So Pettibone was also what you might call an armchair chemist. So he made up this thing called Greek fire, which uh, that's what he called it, which was a bunch of chemicals mixed in a bottle uh-huh. that would explode if you broke the bottle. So instead of having you know, I think, what is it called? Molotov cocktail where you put the rag in and like yeah, the rag right. on fire. It's just a bottle with no fire. But if you throw it, it'll explode and light everything around it in a chemical fire. That that must still exist. I mean, I don't know. That's a crazy ass weapon. <laughs> yeah. Orchard was very into it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. But the union leaders weren't into the Greek fire thing they were way more into like large scale stuff so mm-hmm. you know like they he sat around <laughs> petty bone and orchard sat around for a while like training to make this greek fire yeah. big bill haywood was like all right guys no more greek fire <laughs> we're gonna do other stuff <laughs> yeah so it got left on the cutting room floor right right so union secretary big bill haywood complained that not enough money was coming in for the Colorado strike. So they had organized this big strike, big labor strike, but it was dragging on and they Mm -hmm. were sort of running out of funds. And he wanted to do something really crazy to stir it up and rally the troops. (laughs) And right around this time, kind of out of nowhere, and as far as I've read, the union president, Charles Moyer, was arrested and held in jail for some trumped up charges, like probably because they thought he was about to start some shit. They were trying to kind of keep him off the streets. Yeah. So everyone's up in arms. And the miners held Colorado Governor James H. Peabody responsible. So Orchard pipes up and he pitches that they murder Peabody to send a message. So for several nights, Orchard sits outside the governor's mansion with a shotgun. But because of the geography and the people coming in and out of the house, it just really didn't work at all. He never got a shot. It just was a bad plan. It was not a good plan, right? Man, so, some Greek fire might have... <laughs> might have, like, caused a distraction. <laughs> yeah. We're going to see this as we go. Uh-huh. Like, as much as he had this... in, He has a lot of crazy for lack of a better word, successes. Yeah. But also a lot of this is just shooting from the hip. So sometimes they pitch ideas and they don't have any plans. <laughs> yeah, And yeah, they're yeah. just not that good. Right. So they're constantly trying to kill people, but then it doesn't work. Yeah. And so they have to like, they just skip it and go on to the next guy. <laughs> yeah. They're just always like bouncing around and then they go back to that guy and they try something different, you know, so right. we'll see. It really shows you how he's not like a uber focused guy. Yeah, you know what totally. I mean? He's like, oh, Greek fire. Let's figure out how to make that. <laughs> yeah, They're like, come yeah. on, guy, come back. <laughs> All right. Hi, my name is Jules, and I'm the host of Riddle Me That True Crime, which focuses on unsolved murders and disappearances, where I often do so with the help of family members, where they come on and tell their stories, and oftentimes with experts. I'll usually present the story over a multi-episode story arc, 
Sometimes I'll do one-off episodes like one I covered recently, which was the tragic and very suspicious death of 14-year-old Noah Donahoe in Belfast, Northern Ireland. So Noah went off on his bike one day. It was Father's Day, the 21st of June, 2020, amidst lockdown. He rides his bike and he's going to Cave Hill Park to meet friends and something along the route causes him to get derailed. He ends up in an area that he's unfamiliar with and has no business being in, given that he is a Catholic schoolboy and this is a loyalist area. So it takes just under a week until Noah's body is discovered. He's discovered unclothed in a storm drain and the PSNI comes out with a preliminary conclusion of accident. Mind you, this is before an autopsy has been done to determine manner of death or cause of death and also before the forensics has been run. The family is screaming out for justice. I really hope you will join me on Riddle Me That True Crime, which you can listen to anywhere you get your podcasts. But anyway, murdering the governor did not work out. So they decided to abandon that idea and go after someone else. A hated mind detective, Lyle Gregory, had just rolled into town. Mm. Okay, so this is like somebody they really don't like. So what, he was hired by mine owners to try to figure out who's blowing everything up? Exactly. So anybody who works for the mine owners, you know, they're like, we do not like that guy. And that was his job. So Pettibone, inventor of Greek fire, suggested to Orchard that they capture the mine detective and perform a, quote, mutilating operation on him as a warning to anyone trying to mess with the union. So Orchard grabbed a mining buddy and stalked the mine detective around Denver for a few days, Mm -hmm. eventually landing at a bar. But they realized, okay, dude's in the bar. We're out here. We know where he is. This is the time to grab him. But they didn't have a plan for the mutilating operation. In fact, they hadn't thought beyond capturing the detective at all. They didn't have a second location. They didn't have an operating room. Even though they've been doing it for days at this point. Right. They didn't have anything set up. No torture weapons. Like nothing. Right. right. So the guy walks out of the bar and Orchard just walks up to him and shoots him dead on the spot. Oh, damn. He walks out of the saloon. And that was the solution. He's like, well, I'll just shoot him and they kill him, which is just like. Nobody was expecting that. Wow. That's just straight up murder in cold blood. I mean, the bombing stuff is you can sort of, I don't know, work around in your mind that like you weren't there and it's, you Which know. Which will change in the future. Yeah. So this guy's already just straight up pulling triggers in people's faces. Yeah. Damn. Right. And when you listen to his quotes, they're always like, yeah, you know, I, I didn't even know it was a bad thing. It's like, that's where he's at. So. Oh, my God. So despite the uh, horrific nature of Orchard's personality and deeds, everyone thought killing the detective sent a great message. (laughs) But even with all that, the strikers were still kind of feeling over it, right? They'd been striking for a long time and they were worn out and broke. So Big Bill Haywood thought a big explosion would really bring people together. And Orchard raises his hand yet again and he proposes they blow up the local railroad station in independence colorado why not so the mine in independence colorado was actually being worked by strike breakers at the time and the strike breakers would get off around 2 a.m and all go down to the independence station to catch a train to get home so this is what orchard says I went to Cripple Creek that afternoon 
with a couple of small bottles of acid and some other rigging. I broke into a powder magazine and took two 50-pound boxes of dynamite and hid them within easy distance of the Independence Railroad Depot. Late that night, I prepared a bomb under the station platform. The mechanism was a simple job and consisted of the powder, some caps, a bottle of acid, and a little windlass winch, which when turned would pull the cork from the bottle and permit the acid to run out. This would explode the charge. But setting the bomb in place took some work. I had to crawl a long way on my belly under the platform. It was dark and cold. Hooking up the windlass to the cork was a ticklish job, but I managed it. Through the dark, I could hear the strike-breaking miners, quite a crowd of them, coming out of the mine and going to the depot. The train was on time. I heard her whistle for the station at 2.35, and a moment later, she drove in. Just then, I pulled on the wire. A second later, the charge went off with a tremendous roar. So with this explosion, 26 men were instantly killed, and about 50 more were maimed. So he blew up Damn. everything. Whoa. That is so brutal. Yeah, it's so brutal. I've never even heard of this guy. It's just like, and the way he talks about it is just, yep, then I walked down there. It was really fidgety work, but, you know, I got it done. It was ticklish. Yeah. What an absolute psycho. Yeah. So Orchard was then sent on a vacation. Uh, they got him out of town. So he went hunting yeah. and fishing and he kicked it for a few weeks in Wyoming. And was that also got the big thumbs up? That many people dead, that many people maimed? The union sent him on vacation to protect him and they gave him all this money so he could go have a really good time. They keep sending him on vacations to like have a good time after he bombs somebody. They are totally fine with it. Like the leaders at the time are like, yeah, man. Here, go get, take a vacation. They gave him 200 bucks. He went to Wyoming and he had a great time. And then he, he came back and the union leaders had another target for him. This man named Fred uh, Bradley. So he was an official in the Federal Mine Owners Association. Uh-huh. And the union leaders had already tried to kill Bradley like a bunch of times, but it hadn't worked. So this is a guy who's been a target for a while. And in August of 1904, they gave Orchard $200 and sent him off to San Francisco under the name John Dempsey. And when he got to San Francisco, he found that this guy Bradley had gone to Alaska for a few weeks. So he set himself up in a resort in Caliente Springs where he gambled and got trashed for a while while Mm -hmm. the guy was out of town. So... Orchard rented a room near Bradley's apartment in San Francisco and then started his plan. He had, and this is something you'll see him do multiple times. He made friends with the guy who owned the local liquor store. And through him, he meets all the domestic workers from the Bradley's house, like the house cleaners and cooks and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And through them, he learns about Bradley's home routine because Bradley's home was in the middle of this bustling San Francisco area. He didn't think using a bomb was a reasonable option. So Orchard switches it up. He sneaks over to the Bradley home and he waits outside for the milkman who comes around three or four in the morning. And then he goes to the milk and he poisons it with strychnine. He just fills the whole bottle with strychnine. So this guy's just an assassin at this point. And then he just sits there 
and waits outside to see what happened. So he waits and he waits and he doesn't hear any screaming and the police don't come. It's just kind of quiet. Nobody's acting weird. Poisoned. Okay. Right. So he finds out later, he goes down to the liquor store and he's talking to people and he's like, man, you know, how are you? Just trying to see if anything happened. Yeah. And he finds out that the cook had done this kind of unusual thing. She had come in and got a bottle of milk because she said she tasted the milk at the house and it was really bitter and tasted terrible. So she uh, threw it out and bought a new jug of milk. Yeah. So obviously that didn't work. And it didn't kill her. She just had a little sip. It didn't kill her. Uh-huh. She just thought it was rotten, probably spit yeah. it out, right? Right. So the milk thing didn't work. Subtlety didn't work for him. Good. So he decides to go back to bombs. Bad. So Orchard constructs this bomb and he attaches it to Bradley's front door. And then... <laughs> like he just had the worst, sloppiest, anyone in the house could have drank the poison yeah. type of thing. And that didn't work. He's he like, said, right, like, there back was a to quote, bombing. There was a quote where he was like, well, and he was like, I felt terrible about it because I, well, I knew that all the kids would be drinking the milk. But <laughs> I just had to do it and I didn't want to set off a bomb. Uh, so he... Jesus Christ. He takes his bomb... He attaches it to Bradley's front door. And then he calls into Bradley's office, makes a fake appointment pretending to be a landowner looking to sell his property, and hangs up. And Bradley eats his breakfast, pops out of his house at 9 a.m. for this fake appointment, and the bomb blew off the entire front of his three-story home. Mm. Uh, Bradley survived, but he ended up being deaf and blind after the attack. So oh my it was God. really violent. Obviously, it was my life. Wow. The only thing that this even kind of compares to is stuff you see in like Casino and Goodfellas, like these kind of mafia hitman type of just yeah. brutal, like, you know, or like in Scarface, these kind of massive sort of criminal terrorists. Right, because it doesn't have anything to do with anything. I mean, he's just getting, he's literally just an assassin. I mean, really, right. he doesn't seem yeah. very politically motivated and he doesn't say anything about being politically motivated. Right. Did he ever talk about really loving his union brothers and no. the laborers of the world? He unite? talks about his fun riding the train when everybody was going off. And yeah. he talks a little bit. Of, I mean, he was trying to own a mine before he became a union member. So right. it's like, I don't think he really cares. No, he's just looking for an excuse to blow people up and kill them. So after this explosion, Orchard then returns to Denver to try and kill the governor of Colorado again. They want to put him back on that case. And that would be the first of a series of hits and misses for Orchard. So Orchard returns to Denver and he constructs this bomb to kill the governor in the street. But he just couldn't get it to work and gives up, deciding instead to blow up Colorado's Supreme Court justice, Luther Goddard. So again, Orchard watches the judge's routine and he plots out the judge's daily route to the office. And he decided to construct a, a bomb and then bury it in the snow just off the judge's walking path and then place a fine looking woman's purse just off the path on top of the bomb, sort of tempting the judge to walk slightly off the path and then trip the wire and explode the bomb. So the purse is the bait. Oh, man. Well, that sounds like anyone could just walk by and hit that. And he does talk about that. What Uh he tries to do is he tries not to, at least he says he tries to buffer the experience for other people. So he tries not to put things up in really heavily 
you know, populated areas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Great. So he's slightly uh, <laughs> Well, polite. he says he does that. Right. So like clockwork, the judge leaves his house and walks through the snow to work. But at the last minute, he runs into a friend. And he and the friend start talking and they end up walking a different direction. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, from his hiding place, Orchard saw another dude briskly walking down the judge's intended path almost at the same moment. And that dude snatched up the purse, exploding the bomb and himself and shattering all the windows on the block. Oh, my God. So after this public botched assassination, Orchard sort of freaked. He changed his name from Dempsey to Thomas S. Hogan yeah. and became an insurance salesman for a little w- while. Was it really? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask a question. <laughs> he, he was out there selling insurance to Midwestern farmers. <laughs> okay. So he got a different job. Yeah. So, okay. But it was obvious that it was intended for the judge. I don't know. They don't really say that. I mean, yeah. I think they're just like, ah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was definitely a big public thing. But I, they like to blow stuff up, so it's like... Right. I'm sure they're not that worried about something blowing up. I don't know. Yeah. So Orchard sells insurance for a while, but he's not into it. So he returns to Denver in August of 1905 to blow stuff up again. And Big Bill Haywood and union leaders now had their sights on blowing up the Idaho governor who had called federal troops on the miners who had terrorized the Coeur d'Alene area, area, right? Right, so they're still holding on to that grudge. Right. It was just a few years earlier, um, and that man's name is Frank Stunenberg. So the plan was to blow up Stunenberg and then send threatening letters to a bunch of the people they had failed to kill thus far to sort of send them a message, right? God, what's the end game of all this? Like, see, we murdered everyone... Now you have to let us be a functioning union and mine the things. I like to think of this story very much like the runaway train is the metaphor, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. a train of people careening down a mountain, you know, singing uh, and not really understanding the consequences. (laughs) Like, I don't know what the end game is. I mean, I know that like, I know that if you're talking about, the history of labor and the country. It's a very complicated. Obviously. Of course, of course. Like there, <laughs> but this particular thread in that quilt. <laughs> it like, happens to be a fuse to a stick a, of dynamite. A little, <laughs> there's a little what? Like I read this story and I was just like, what? Yeah, right. I couldn't even, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, this is just too wild to even feel political to me it's yeah right like i just kept reading it and i just kept being like is this how and i was looking up these guys like you know trying to figure out who they were and what their history was and like they're even crazier like like people do <laughs> wild stuff you know uh-huh. i don't know it was kind of, it kind of reminds me of um our frank nitty episode you uh-huh, know uh-huh. In, like chicago you know in the 30s right where you're just like how did they get away with this you know yeah but it's just right place right time (laughs) (laughs) so on august 25th 1905 orchard left for caldwell idaho where the ex-governor stunenberg was living at the time so he's not even the governor anymore no frank stunenberg was this large 
quiet, simply dressed man, like a really simple dude. Yeah. He was a card carrying union member um, of the typographists union. So not a minor, but he was mm-hmm. like definitely pro labor. Yeah. That's the platform he ran on politically. He's a populist. So this is the guy that they want to blow up. Right. Right. And he served two terms as governor and called the National Garden on Orchard and the Union during his second term. Completely rationally. Studenberg knew calling the troops in was political suicide. But uh, at that point, he was like, these guys are just acting like straight up insane criminals. Yeah, right. Like, what other reasonable option is there? You know, like, he, he just hit a wall, right? Yeah, I mean, that's warfare. That's like being a little weird army or whatever. Right. So he called in the, the federal troops and then just never ran for re-election uh-huh. and then ended up leaving the area and moving to this tiny town called Caldwell mm-hmm. to be a sheep farmer. Mm-hmm. He was like, I'm over it. Right. Right. So Orchard begins this, I don't know, poorly orchestrated game of cat and mouse. So he moves to a hotel near where Studentburg lived and, you know, starts creating this thing he says i'm a sheep buyer i like to buy sheep because he's trying to learn more about studenberg mm-hmm, mm-hmm. studenberg is selling sheep and he's just asking oh is anyone around here sell sheep mm-hmm. oh what's that guy like right yeah, like yeah. pumping people for information but as he's doing this studenberg unexpectedly leaves on business to boise idaho so Orchard's like, ah, man. So he packs up everything and he follows him to Boise and he gets a hotel room next door to Studenberg Mm -hmm. and he starts building a time bomb that he was planning to install under Studenberg's bed. But he gets done building this time bomb. It's connected to a clock and he's testing it out and it's just way too loud. Like the clock is just ticking like very, very loud. It's very obvious. <laughs> yeah, right. So he's like super frustrated in this hotel room. Uh, he's and, just using like a bootleg Rolex. <laughs> and he's making it all up as he goes live. As far yeah. as I know, this is the first time bomb that he yeah, put together, right? right? right. Yeah, yeah. And so he's sitting there trying to figure out how to muffle the clock component that sound when you know, he basically looks up and realizes Studenberg's gone. <laughs> He's been just doing that for four <laughs> days. So Studenberg had taken off on another three-week business trip. So he's out. <laughs> and now Orchard doesn't even know where he is. Yeah. So at this point, Orchard just throws his hands up. And he goes on this fat-ass sightseeing trip across the Pacific Northwest. So <laughs> he took a, like a cruise and he like, saw some whales. <laughs> yeah. He was like, he went to a fair. He just did all this stuff, right? Right. And three uh. weeks later, Orchard returned to Caldwell uh, as T.S. Hogan sheet buyer, right? That's his new alias. And <laughs> Is he... that even a job? The buyer of sheep? I don't think so. He can buy anything. It's America. As a job, though? <laughs> he, has, he can do anything as a job, Nick. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, so he's T.S. Hogan now. T.S. Hogan, the sheep buyer. And he checks into the Saratoga Hotel. So... Working with his room locked, he constructs a 10-pound bomb with a detonator made with a string, a cork, and a bottle of acid. And those are kind of materials he's used before. Yeah, right. He's returning to his comfort zone. Right, exactly. It's like the clock thing. I I flew too close (laughs) to the sun and I got burned. So now I'm back on planet Earth. I'm going to do my bottle acid (laughs) string thing, right? So again, Orchard watches his targets, right? So he watches Studenberg's routine and... He ends up 
figuring out this like footpath that Studenberg used to walk into town. And he puts down the bomb and sets up a tripwire that runs across the path. And then he, like a little gremlin, he sits in the bushes and he waits. And he waits a super long time for an explosion that never came. So he goes back and realizes Studenberg had just seen the tripwire and stepped over the tripwire, leaving the bomb, bomb intact. <laughs> So cat and mouse didn't work. <laughs> Damn, right? Okay. Yeah, right. So then after that happened, Studenberg then leaves the next day for another two-week business trip. <laughs> so at this point, it's like, you know, Orchard's grinding his teeth. He's been out here for six weeks or so, maybe longer. He's had two failed bomb attempts. Right. The guy keeps leaving town. The last person he killed was a completely innocent person that had nothing to do with his mission at all. Right. He's had this string of failures. Yeah. So he just decides, I'm going to hunker down. I'm just going to stay at the Saratoga Hotel and wait for this dude to return. Mm -hmm. So he's sitting there waiting. And one day he's chilling, playing cards. And he looks up and Studenberg walks in with two friends to get a drink and so orchard runs upstairs to his room and grabs this bomb wraps it up in newspaper tucks it under his arm like nobody could tell what he has yeah runs out of the hotel and runs over to the studenberg house so he wires the bomb to the fence post so it would go off when Studenberg opened his gate. And on December 30th, 1905 in Caldwell, Idaho, ex-governor Frank Studenberg walked through the snowy night from the Saratoga Hotel to his house about two blocks away. He crossed paths briefly, although he didn't know it at the time, with Harry Orchard as Harry Orchard sped walk back to his room at the Saratoga Hotel in the opposite direction. So Frank continues on his path. He opens the gate to his white picket fence and was instantly exploded into a million pieces. Oh my God. The sound of the blast was heard from miles away and it caved in the front of his house just as Orchard made it safely back into his room undetected. Wow. But there's one big mistake uh -huh. this is from orchard i was going to take some things out of my room and throw them away there were some bits of dynamite some pieces of fuse several giant caps and a <laughs> bottle or two of acid great i emptied the acid into the sink and put the bottle into my side pocket planning to take it downstairs and throw it away it wasn't two seconds after I put that bottle in my pocket when a flash like a pistol shot rang out in the room and the coat was nearly all torn off my back because this fool accidentally made a tiny bomb in his pocket and he <laughs> blew up his clothes. So it was a little mini Greek fire. Exactly. Right on his back. Really bad news, right? But right now, the whole town is shook by this bomb. Right. So people are running around and it's really crazy. Yeah. But he did have a loud bang in his room. Yes. He doesn't know who heard it, right? Yes. Despite all that and all this chaos, a calm came over him after the explosion. Right. This is his happy place. Right. He said he's feeling really cool, calm and collected, not at all bothered. And he went downstairs to have dinner. But he had sort of snapped. 
So the whole town is going nuts about Studenberg, the ex-governor, being blown to pieces. But in the midst of all of this, this crazy commotion and everything yeah. that's going on, Orchard just sat in the dining room <laughs> calmly eating his dinner. He's like, right? I'll, I'll take the prime rib, please. So he already looked like a weirdo. Yeah. And then people were now noticing this guy's right. acting like a weirdo, right? So that's right. just kind of in the ether. And... Outside, you know, he's looking cool as a cucumber, but inside his mind starts going on the fritz. And this is also from Orchard. So he says, something, I cannot tell you what, came across me, he explains. I got to thinking of the many incriminating things in my room. Besides the fuse and caps, I recalled that I had some sugar and some chloride of potash in my things. I also had an amount of plaster of Paris, a batch of screw eyes, and an electric flashlight. I mean, it's a bomb-making factory. He was realizing that. And now, he goes, I knew all these things would be hard to explain if found, but I still sat there and didn't do anything about them. Mm. After that cap went off in my pocket, I seemed to lose my reasoning power. And I simply left everything where it was. So right now, out of all this chaos, there was actually an early evening train straight out of town that evening. That he could have caught? He could have caught it before police were even looking for the bomber, right? Right. It was like in the chaos. But he didn't take it. He just froze. He kind of thought if he took the train, he would be suspicious. And if he went back to his room, he'd be suspicious. So he just sat in the lobby until he had to go to bed, trying Which to not look suspicious. Also incredibly suspicious. And the next morning he gets up, the brain's still not back, right? He's still trying to get his footing underneath him. So instead of wow. getting out of town yeah. or doing anything, he decides that what he can do is establish some sort of alibi. So he tries to play it cool by walking up to a group of local men at who were talking about the bombing. So they're yeah. all hyped up talking about the bombing. Sure. And... Orchard thinks the least suspicious thing to do would be to walk up, ignore the conversation, and then ask everyone where he could buy some sheep. (laughs) So he did that. (laughs) And everybody Uh, in the group gave him the side eye. And within an hour, he was hauled in by police for questioning. (laughs) They were just like, who's this guy? Like, why is he here? He's the only stranger in town and now this guy's been blown up. He's just drawing all this attention to himself. So, while he's under questioning, he's still cool, like, under pressure and he answered all the questions, you know, correctly for the Mm -hmm. police and they release him. But that same day, just a couple hours later, he's walking around town still, like, you know, pretending to be the sheep buyer and a sheriff from Oregon recognized him. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, that guy's not a sheep buyer. <laughs> he's a famous he's a, bomber. He's like, that's Harry Orchard. He's that guy from the Western Federation of Miners. He's a domestic war criminal. So everybody, well, at this point, nobody knows. Yeah. He hasn't been attached to anything. Mm. Um, but I think that people, in the way, the uh, impression that I got, it's almost like the way people would study like mafia families. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're studying people who work within sure. organizations. We know people are blowing stuff up, but they actually, as far as anyone knows, yeah, they didn't have any evidence against him for any of these other things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, we actually only know about all these things because of what he told 
that investigator right. in the jail cell. Right. The fancy guy with the big mustache. Right. The hilariously cliche detective. Right, exactly. So police, you know, now know he's Harry Orchard and they run up and they search his hotel room and they find a bomb making factory. right? <laughs> and a bomb that has gone off. Right, in right, the room. right. And they arrest him. Mm-hmm. And that's when a little while later, investigator James McParland from the Pinkerton's National Detective Agency in Denver rolled into town to ask Orchard a few questions. And to see if maybe he could get a piece of the $15,000 reward money attached to information about the student verb bombing. Mm-hmm. So McParland gets this interview with Orchard in this Caldwell jail cell. And that's how, like I said, we got all the information we have on the case today. Because he spilled the beans. <laughs> So one of the potentially unintended results of this case was that the top dogs of the Miners Federation were in big doo-doo. Fucking thank God. (laughs) So President Charles Moyer, Secretary Big Bill Haywood, and now inventor of Greek fire, George Pettibone, who had worked his way up in the ranks, were all implicated in the Studenberg murder. Mm -hmm. But the guys were in Colorado and they needed to be extradited to Idaho to be charged. (sighs) I hate to take this detour, but I just think it's really funny Uh because we're talking about how crazy everything is and these guys are getting away with stuff. But this is the legal strategy from the perspective of law enforcement in Idaho is that basically... At the time, you couldn't extradite anyone from another state unless they were already a fugitive. And these guys weren't convicted of anything. And they were only, you know, labeled as accomplices. And, Uh you know, so uh it's like they didn't really have a legal case for extradition. Yeah. So they kidnapped them. (laughs) 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 The way you could do that is like like basically during... This time, Supreme Court ruled that even though you can't extradite people, you don't have that right, that the state could prosecute anyone who had been abducted. (laughs) 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 Then that you could and the means of um, abduction like couldn't be like, I don't know, argued in the court. It was like irrelevant to the case. So you could get them. From one state to the other somehow. Yeah, right. Then you can charge it's like them. possessions is nine-tenths of the law. So they all got together and the governor then of Idaho, the new governor, wrote an extradition order that he knew was illegal, gave it to the sheriff in Idaho. The Idaho sheriff goes over to Colorado, but they wait until Saturday morning because the courts are closed. Mm. So they have a right to challenge the extradition in court. But they wait until all the courts are closed until Monday. And then they hand them this fake extradition order that they know is fake. Yeah. But they can't get out of it because the courts are closed. So they just kidnapped them and took them back to Idaho, which I just thought was like, <laughs> what is going on? Okay. Uh, yeah, but that worked. They got them yeah. back to Idaho. Yeah, it yeah. totally worked. I guess it's hard to argue with outcome. I mean, I don't know. I can't argue with anything. It doesn't even make sense. (laughs) So the three men were arrested and they're shipped back to Idaho where they waited for their trial in jail in this tiny town in Caldwell Mm -hmm. for the next 18 months. So they were there for a long time. And it was a hugely 
polarizing trial. Either you were with the Western Federation of Miners or you were against them. And it really became, are you for the labor movement or against the labor movement? Yeah. Everyone weighed in on the topic. Even President Roosevelt came under heavy criticism for calling the men, quote, undesirable citizens. Mm. Uh, in response to that, union workers all over the country got buttons made that read, I am an undesirable citizen. Oh, my like, God. That's just like current politics. I know. It's really wild. Oh, my God. <laughs> but like in a different way, but it's the same uh, human behavior. Yeah, you know, right. Used of for course. different purposes. Yeah, yeah. So everyone with these buttons is also staging these massive protests around the country. So it's a famous national trial, but also like the president's involved and the buttons are made and it's the entire union organization and like labor in the country yeah. is, you know, backing these people. And the trial begins on May 9th, 1907. So the case for the defense of the three union men hung on the idea that Orchard was just a nutty ass liar, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's basically Orchard's word against theirs. Uh -huh. The prosecution brought in a famous psychologist from Harvard to testify that although Orchard's testimony was wild AF, it was truthful, according to him. Okay. The defense's position was that this dude was, quote, the most monumental liar that ever existed. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the defense lawyer's position. Wow, that's good. <laughs> really got away with words. A little poet. So wait, hold on, time out. So is he uh, testifying on the prosecution's behalf to get like a lenient? jail time or something i they don't really actually talk about why he didn't get oh you know he actually did get uh his sentence commuted from death to life so maybe uh -huh. he did get a uh, deal but they didn't really talk about that in the book uh-huh there is like a point in which orchard talks about wanting to unburden his conscience mm -hmm. so he might have just been like i'm ready to tell the story yeah and work with the prosecution or whatever but i just want the truth to be out there yeah whereas the defense is saying this is fundamentally untrue yeah right right so i'm not sure if it had anything to do with animosity between the two groups as much as someone was like i just gotta spill the beans <laughs> <laughs> i can't wait for this episode to be over <laughs> You're never allowed to say that ever again. <laughs> but basically, the entire <laughs> trial came down to the fact that in Idaho at the time, no one could be convicted of a crime solely on the testimony of an accomplice mm -hmm. without any other corroborating evidence. So basically, like, if I got caught stealing eggs yeah, and I said, well, Nick helped me. Right. But there was nothing to support that. Right. They're not going to put you in jail. That's just something that cannot you cannot be convicted. Yeah, because they got people just walk around saying, I'm a sheep buyer. <laughs> exactly. As if that's even a job. They're like, <laughs> we can't just hear. What people say means nothing at this point. Right. So there was no other evidence linking the three men to the murder. Yeah. So they all got on. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. which was really crazy. Yeah to happen in Idaho because basically everyone involved in this trial, I mean, the mine owners association yeah. was like heavily putting pressure on sure. the government for a conviction. I mean, people sure. wanted a conviction. So as much as there was a lot of support for labor in the town of Coeur like in that area of Coeur d'Alene, yeah. people were just 
wanting a conviction. Yeah. So it was it, but they can't because it's just like like literally not. Legal. And it was just for the assassination of the ex governor, right? This had nothing to do with the other bombs, right? But they didn't uh-huh. get to hear like the whole tasty right. story, right? Okay. Get to taste all those beans. <laughs> Ooh, a little. <laughs> so this one's of, a Boston bean. <laughs> so all of the labor leaders got off mm-hmm. and Harry Orchard got life in prison and spent the rest of his life raising turkeys and chickens behind bars. What? I think jail was way more cracking back then than it is now. It <laughs> sounds like <laughs> what would have been true for a lot of people outside of jail at the time. Yeah. So, you yeah. know. Oh my God. Well, I just love that this guy is just like, bombs are my thing. I love bombs. I love blowing people up. I'll murder 27 people. Pretty much everyone is innocent. I used a gun that one time. That was stupid. It went right back to bombs. Poisoning. Ooh, that wasn't good. I love bombs. I love bombs. And then he gets blown up a tiny bit. Basically, a firecracker goes off in his his jacket. And then he just like loses his mind and can no longer think and just stands there and gets caught. (laughs) And then confesses to the entire thing yeah that is someone who can dish it out but cannot take it yeah yeah one tiny little taste (laughs) of his own medicine and he can't even function yeah ah all right what'd you think i just said what i thought (laughs) (laughs) you were too sassy today so did the one hit wonder detective mcparland uh get more fame from this did he rise to the top again you know, the story kind of ends with what I told you. So uh-huh. there's not a lot of like what happens in the future. Right. But I think that basically he's credited for blowing up. I mean, he's the only reason why this story exists. And who knows? Yeah. Orchard might have told someone else. Yeah, right. But he's the only person like he was the catalyst for all of this stuff. He got the credit and he's in the history books now, I guess, because you read about him. Yeah. Ah, that's hilarious. He just he was just there to get a little bit of award money or whatever. Reward I mean, money. it's just funny because he just he strolls into the jail and they're like, "That who's this guy?" <laughs> yeah, right. you know, they're like, "I thought that guy died like twenty years ago." <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, all right, hilarious. Speaking of history books, Mira, why don't you uh, hit these people with some resources? I used one of my favorite books. I love this book. It's called "Murder Out Yonder" by Stuart H. Holbrook. And, you know, if you have a hankering for old timey crimes, it's an anthology and it's really well written. It's very funny and well researched. And I think this guy's great. Yeah, but buy it for someone else because Mira will probably tell some more stories from this book later. So don't go out there. Don't go out there reading her books. Keep that. Let that be a surprise for you. I know. I think I found like I did maybe three or four stories out of this one. Uh, All right. Muriel, you nailed it. Oh, thanks, Nick. (laughs) Good job. Get out of (laughs) here. And thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research and writing, and I did all the recording, editing, post-production, and it was recorded right here in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. We also draw and animate little bonus content cartoons for Muriel's Murders, which populate our social media feeds. You can find us at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. 
YouTube and TikTok. Our DMs are open. We love getting recommendations. We love hearing what you have to say. You can always email us at muriel'smurders at gmail.com. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. We've been getting some really good reviews lately, too. Oh, they, make I- us, they make us smile so much. We got to shout out Pam Cake Mix. I just want to read one part of the review i won't read the whole thing yeah but this is my favorite part nick's reactions are the best the kind you want that awkward friend who doesn't listen to <laughs> crime to react with <laughs> it's so great but it's a great review so thank you so much and if you're listening on spotify please add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends should tune into our music is by mario castellini thank you so much mario find him on instagram he's a very good follow at Casalini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Murals, please check out our non-murder podcast, Hell in Your 30s. This last episode is all about Muriel and I escaping to a little small town. It was really fun. Anyways, if you're just like, wow, these guys have the best personalities in the whole world, and I want to know way too much about their lives, <laughs> check out Hell in Your 30s wherever you are listening to this podcast. All right, that's it. Have a great one. Hey, it's Mia. Hey, it's Allie. And we host the Rom-Com Review Podcast, P.S. I Love Rom-Com. Each week, we'll have incredible guests come and discuss a new rom-com, grand gestures, meet-cutes, and of course, that elusive chemistry. Mia, what are you doing holding that giant boombox over your head? I'm hoping to win over listeners with this grand gesture. Take us back! Find a new episode every week and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Campfire Media. Wow, you're uh, still holding that boombox. Yeah, I've got great upper body strength. Thanks, CrossFit. P.S. I love rom-coms. I love rom-coms. Campfire.